Chapter 13 Per Falk on how Firin Pharmaceuticals is taking the lead in fecal microbiota transplantation. Gut health has become a hot topic in recent years, with research showing that the bacteria in our gut play a crucial role in our overall health and well-being. One of the most promising new treatments for gut-related conditions is fecal microbiota transplantation, aka FMT. FMT involves transplanting healthy bacteria from a donor's stool into the gut of a recipient, with the aim of restoring a healthy microbiome. FMT has shown great promise in treating conditions like Clostridium difficile infection, inflammatory bowel disease, and even autism. One company that has been at the forefront of FMT research is Firin Pharmaceuticals, led by Dr. Per Falk. Fearing's FMT platform is one of the most advanced in the industry with a focus on developing safe and effective treatments that can be delivered to patients quickly and efficiently. Let's hear from Dr. Per Falk. Dr. Per Falk joined Fearing Pharmaceuticals in 2015 and he was appointed president on January 1, 2019. He previously held executive and senior leadership positions in research, medical, and clinical development at Novo Nordisk and AstraZeneca. Before joining the industry, he held positions as associate professor at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden and the Washington University of School of Medicine in the U.S. Per has a medical degree and a PhD in biochemistry and clinical chemistry from the Gothenburg University in Sweden. So welcome, Per. Thank you very much, Amin. It's a pleasure to be here. It is also my honor, really, to, to have you on this audiobook, The Microbiome Mavericks. I know how busy you are, so I'm very grateful to give me that opportunity. But before we start about speaking about the microbiome research and innovation, I think our listeners probably would love to know a little bit about the history of feeding pharmaceuticals and what are the areas of research that you work on. Of course, yeah. So Faring is a, a privately owned mid-sized pharmaceutical company. We're based in Switzerland. We have about 7,000 colleagues uh, worldwide. And we have uh, really three large uh, therapeutic areas where we have over century, uh, decades developed new drugs. Our biggest area is reproductive medicine and maternal health. And this is where we also are the most you, this is our most unique profile in the world. We are a world leader in this area, developing drugs and improving therapies within reproductive endocrinology and also within obstetrics. So maternal health is big on our agenda. Uh, and this is really one of the areas in the world with the biggest health disparities, I think, that cuts through both uh, economical disparities, racial disparities, uh, and, and others, right, where you can see the biggest differences in healthcare equality. The other two areas which are historically extremely strong for us is urology and uro-oncology and gastroenterology. I mean, both areas, many years ago now, Faring was the first mover. This is a company who always believed in the power of research and going where others had not gone before to, to solve medical problems for patients. Uh, that's why some of the first uh, drugs to treat uh, urological diseases uh, were developed 50 years ago in-house by Faring, and they're still there today. And uh, some of them are life-saving, used for rare diseases such as central diabetes insipidus, 
Uh, in gastroenterology, Farin was the first to develop, I would say, non-toxic chronic therapy for patients with inflammatory bowel diseases, which was 36 years ago, uh, a time when basically prednisone was the only solution if you had Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Farin's founders, um, the first generation Holsons, developed drugs that allowed patients to take them on a daily basis without facing uh, adverse events and thereby being free of disease and living a, a better life. So building families of all shapes and sizes and helping families and people live better lives is sort of a credo for us. And we've always been research driven. That's why I'm not surprised that this is also where I have the 36 years, I guess, 37 years in the microbiome field, actively and intellectually and emotionally found a company that mm -hmm. was prepared to take this step that we have done being a first mover in this field as well. Very inspiring. You mentioned how many years you've been in, in this area of research of the, the microbiome. You've actually, before this, uh, we get into this call, you mentioned to me your PhD was like literally before I was born. Uh, in, in I, I, I kind of imagine that. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a scary perspective, uh, maybe for you, but more so for me. Yeah. Uh, I started my PhD, which was in uh, complex carbohydrate biochemistry in 1986 in Gothenburg, defended my thesis in 1991. And this was really about describing how uh, components of the non-disease-causing bacteria of the human colon specializes in using complex carbohydrates for nutrients and thereby establishing stable niches uh, within the ecosystem. So it was really a way to describe the molecular crosstalk between the host and their, their microbial ecosystem and counterparts. And, you know, the refinement of this was so fascinating that I sort of, it stuck with me and I'm still here today, right? That uh, bacteria found from individuals that are blood group A patients have specific enzyme systems that can degrade and use blood group A epitopes, which are carbohydrates for yeah. energy extraction. But if you come from a blood group B patient, you have the same bacteria, but with a different enzymatic setup that basically can digest blood group B epitopes, but not blood group A epitopes. So it's a perfect match between the colonizing bacteria and its host. It's a perfect adaptation. And I think that subtlety really pointed to the sophistication of these systems, right? Uh, in those days, all focus was on uh, microbial pathogenesis mm -hmm. because you you need a phenotype to study, right? All research is based on that you have something you define as normal and then you have something that is abnormal or disease and then you try to define sort of the etiology behind this difference. The challenge when you actually study physiology is that you study normal, right? And how do you actually study something that is already there and yeah. describe that? So this really took me on this, this journey, which 12, 14 years was academic medicine, and then in various ways in pharma, up and down, I would say. But that refinement that you can work with bacteria that have been so precisely adapted to their human host that even their enzyme systems reflect the blood group systems of their hosts, right? It was, uh, it was just, a, it was so fascinating to me and it opened up this idea that um, 
many have had, also before me, of course. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're looking at an organ. The microbiome is an organ. The human microbiome is an organ. It's just not located at a precise level in the human body. And it's not, should we say, definable like the liver or the brain. But put together, this is a, a conglomerate of cells which has its own needs in form of metabolic activities to sustain itself, but in doing so provides heavily to human health and disease. And it co-evolves with the human host, right? So the human microbiome in a newborn a few hours after birth is very different from the human microbiome in a three-year-old or in an adult or in a 90-year-old. So like any organ, it has an, an evolution up to maturity and full capacity. And with age, it also changes like any organ. And it basically ends up in a different state at our older age than where I am and you are not yet. <laughs> you know, it takes about two, three years for the human ecosystem, microbiome ecosystem to develop into its climax community with its full metabolic capacity. And like any organ, if something happens during those years to disrupt that evolution, you will get a different composition, a different output, and possibly also a different health impact of this, right? And there's uh, so much done by this now. So I think that this is taken as uh, one of the scientific truths. The question is what you do with it. How do you actually, how do you use this realization of this large, impactful organ into looking at health and disease from a different lens and using it to both understand and diagnose, treat and prevent diseases in a new and better way? It is fascinating because also when you look into the complexity, as you've mentioned, of the microbiome, and it's not just reaching one aspect. We're looking into the gut-brain axis, the gut-skin axis, the gut-liver axis, the oncomicrobiome, even the brain microbiome. Now there are some studies showing, okay, there are some bacteria in the, in the brain. But this is like, you know, when you go back into your uh, initial postdoctoral studies in 25 years ago with the Gordon's lab and his the father name at the father of microbiome. And from that time to today, now people, they say we're just scratching the surface. Are we really scratching or have we really did the breakthroughs in that field? I think we've taken a significant step forward. You know, I, I came to, to Jeff's lab in 1991. Uh, I had then my, my PhD under my belt, and in that PhD, I had worked with, uh, if you call Jeff the father of the microbiome, I had worked with the grandfather of the microbiome, a professor at the Karolinska called Tura Mitvet, who had already in the 60s defined some of the metabolic contributions of the healthy microflora uh, when it comes to degradation and conversion of bile acids, generation of short-chain fatty acids, degradation of complex carbohydrates and, and regular carbohydrates, and then um, proteolysis, right? And he has concluded in those days, he had defined it as max and GAX. So basically, microflora-associated characteristics is what the flora did with its host. In his world, it was rats because he was an experimentalist. And then he had the GAX, so GAC, so germ-free associated characteristics, which was the way he could define that if you don't have bacteria, your metabolism is widely different. And your anatomy is different. The intestine looks different if there are bacteria or no bacteria. 
your immune system is different. You know, your immune system is dormant if you don't have bacteria. It's activated, but not active if you have bacteria. So everything from morphological changes, histological changes, to biochemical changes and cellular changes had been addressed by him and people in his lab over when I came to him, you know, it's almost 30 years, right? With that, I came to Jeff with the with an intention of doing something completely different, actually, uh, when you look at my postdoc. But one day we had this conversation about what to look at in the gastrointestinal tract. And we concluded that, you know, we put all our focus on the epithelial mesenchymal interactions. So basically the epithelial cells interacting with the, the tissue underneath and the cells that were transported there by the lymph or the blood. And we looked at the regulation of gene expression and so on. And I was supposed to learn about this from Jeff. But then we also concluded that actually most of the action happens on the other side, right? It's the luminal epithelial interactions that actually constitutes probably the, the sound, the noise that we're trying to exclude because we just want to look at the human organism or the mouse organism. And we want to exclude the surrounding, the epigenetics. But, you know, that's where you actually have 90% of all the metabolic activity in the intestine is probably in the lumen. So we can't disregard that. And, you know, Jeff said to me, yeah, but, you know, this is absolutely correct. And if we could grip that, of course, it would be great. But there are no way of studying that because, you know, that's already the baseline noise. And then I said, well, you know, I just happen to know this man in Stockholm, right, who has a way of studying that noise. Uh, by simply removing it and then reintroducing it piecemeal to see what it contributes to gene expression, cellular maturity, uh, function, and so on. Uh, and based on that, my postdoc, which was supposed to be basically in transgenic technologies, became a microbiome uh, postdoc. And the word microbiome was still not used, right? It actually came when Jeff wrote his white paper to the NIH in the early 2000s, where he basically claimed that this was one of the new avenues that we need to explore and exploit from a science and health perspective to understand health and disease. The microbiome as such, you know, was, was coined by Joshua Lederberg in the 1950s. And it was a theoretical term because actually there was no way of grasping it, but just like his conclusion was just like there's a human genome, there is a microbiome, right? And one day we will be able to see that microbiome. So this is a long, long, long segue into answering your question. What has the big difference? The big difference is technology. Because the idea that the micro, microflora plays an essential role in health and disease has been there since the founding fathers of microbiology. You can read uh, Theodore Escherich, uh, Louis Pasteur from the late 1800s, and they will claim this. Eli Meshnikov, who won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the cellular, cellular immune system, but he knew this because he could observe this. They just didn't have any way of studying. Ture Mitvet in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, you know, he had basic biochemistry and histology, right? paper chromatography, gas chromatography, and so on and so forth. But with the development of the omics platforms, large scales, metagenomics, transcriptomics, 
you could basically get a picture of a fingerprint of the flora. You can't see it because we still don't know everything in there. Most of it, a lot of it dies when you take it out of its habitat, right? But you can see what it does. So you can see what it left after you. And with metabolomics, genomics, transcriptomics, and so on, you can get these enormously complex maps that in reality describes what the organ leaves behind. And that has been the big, big breakthrough. Uh, and I think we made tremendous strides uh, on science and also in understanding its potential role in therapy. There are still a lot of hurdles to overcome, but I think the last 15 years have had, a, a, you know, compared to the previous 150, it's been a tremendous acceleration. And the last couple of years, when also now regulators have been willing to accept the data you can present around microbiome-based products as admissible for giving a proper label and defining the medicinal products has been a tremendous breakthrough that the whole field and the whole field of healthcare will benefit from. We need more people in it, for sure, right? If it's just us, you know, it, it's, it's over, it dies. Lots of companies, lots of investments, lots of startups, lots of ideas, because that's how the field thrives like any other successful field, right, that we have seen in, in life science over the last uh, several decades. But they've all been technology-driven, right? It's either it is uh, recombinant technology that just opens up new opportunities. For us, it's about understanding through the, the lens of complex omics technologies and augmented intelligence and artificial intelligence that helps us sorting those signals out. I was probably also not born when uh, sequencing was this very long, big gel uh, where you need to do it by hand. You've probably done it yourself. Um, exactly. And uh, actually now in my lab, we have a very small device the size of a tablet called the Minion, which is an actual sequencer. Yeah. It's just fascinating how technology moved and, and quickly. And interestingly, startups are also taking up that and companies the likes of yourself. Yeah. Mentioning like in 2018, you've acquired a microbiome company called the Rebiotics, yeah. uh, which, I mean, they are at the origin of the world first FDA approved fecal microbiota transplant drug. And we will go into the FMTs after, I think, in, in more details. What motivates Ferring Pharmaceuticals today to invest more and more into the microbiome research? So, so Ferring actually has a comparatively long history as a pharmaceutical company in this. Uh, we worked long before my time. Um, maybe 15 years ago, with programs looking at bacteriophages and how bacteriophages would modify the microflora and how that would impact, for instance, diseases like inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, we have large collaborations uh, in Georgia uh, with the Eliava Institute, which uh, is one of the old historical centers. You know, Eliava was a postdoc with Felix Terrell, who is the discoverer of the phages. Mm -hmm. He published actually... 103 years ago in Nature, the first paper around the bacteriophages as a materia that could kill bacteria before they were antibiotics, right? Uh, um, and Eliava was one of those who worked at the Pasteur Institute in those days. We worked with them. We also worked with a, a very uh, sophisticated company in the U.S. in Baltimore uh, called Intralytics, which is a phage-based company. So when I came in 2015, I actually found for the first time a company who was intellectually prepared 
to look at health and disease through the microbiome, uh, microbiome lens, microbiological lens. And we started in 2016 by setting up a, an external research platform called the Center for Translation Microbiome Research at the Karolinska Institute, together with scientists there. We still exist after eight years, doing large prospective uh, studies on how the microbiome evolves longitudinally in large populations in health and disease, simply to understand what is normal. Because before you can define normal, it's very difficult to define what you're what you're trying to correct, right? It's a very long time, pro a long term project. Uh, I got permission from the board and the shareholder to do this, uh, maybe a little grudgingly because it's a big ask and a big big effort. But of course, you then also needed something that was closer to the market. Uh, and I knew uh, very well about uh, rebiotics and their work. Uh, so they became a natural speaking partner for us. Already in 2016, I met Lee Jones. In 2017, we started talking about an acquisition, which was then completed and, and fully implemented in 2018. And what I liked about that company, which set it aside from most other companies, at least, is that they didn't choose. You know, the whole field is talking about how to pick the right bacteria. And what sets them apart, and which also made them face a lot of criticism at the time, was what they, they, they didn't pretend to know how to choose. And I happen to be a firm believer that if there's one thing the field has not yet matured fully into, it's how to make rational choices. Because you know what you know, but you also there's also a whole bunch that you don't know about that you just have to take at face value. So the fact that they had found a way to standardize and specify uh, an already established practice, the FMT, and turn that into a defined product with set specifications, which basically means it it's resembles a medicinal product, right, was the first place for me to start. Because by not having to choose, I lowered the risk for not seeing a success in the other end. And we have seen many companies, you, I mean, you, you speak to some of those fantastic people who, of course, have, have chosen, and some of it works, but some of it doesn't. And, of course, you can always speculate why it doesn't work, but it's probably because we make assumptions based on what we know, and there's still so much to discover. So the fact that we actually had something, which was, you could call it reverse engineering, if you wish, it's the simplest possible entry point into the field, made it attractive for me. So after that acquisition, uh, you know, we integrated uh, rebiotics into fairing. It's still there. It's twice the size it was when we bought them. We have invested lots of money in this uh, because this is part of our future. But we started then executing the phase three program, which because of many challenges, including COVID, which made uh, recruitment really difficult over a period of a year or slightly more than that, finished the phase three program and actually managed to then submit a file which passed uh, an advisory committee late last year and got approval by the end of November in 2022 as the, the first product to get an approval from a regulator in the world. And what makes that special is that, you know, there are no shortcuts just because you have a microbiome product. You actually have to live up to exactly the same standards, regulatory standards, as if you would have developed a new antibiotic. 
for for clostridium difficile infection, or if you have a small molecule for anything else, or if you have a biologic, you have to have a certain level of evidence of safety and efficacy. And then you just have to adapt it to what is possible for you to prove with the modality you have, right? And the fact that there was a regulatory path opened up by the FDA, of course, driven by the enormous medical need driven by antimicrobial resistance, open the door to something that now hopefully others can come through uh, as well. No? So for me, this was sort of a way of starting in both ends. In, bo in one end, you start with a basic translational research platform, which actually might generate insights that could lead to drugs in the future, but it's not usually a place where pharma would invest, right? They would leave that to academia, but no one did that. So we had to do it ourselves. Mm. But in order, of course, also to sort of shortcut this a little bit, you can't wait forever, also to find, in my view, the most likely product to actually make the muster and pass through an FDA uh, review, which was the Rebiota, to my mind. Huh? So, so this is what led up to the acquisition. It is amazing, and I really like the, the the vision. And I am learning as well throughout this discussion. And you know, long term vision and the strategy and how smart was it? Like from yourself, linking into that. And I have to say that I've been into conferences, speaking conferences, microbiome conferences, microbiome movement, like uh, in January, and the whole community of microbiome is cheering up with the feelings and obviously there is a biome bank in australia about this approvals of the fmt because it opens up a lot of avenues for the microbiome that is something that can actually make a change and, and save people's and, and patients lives you've mentioned fmt can you probably explain in, in simple words what is a fecal microbiota transplantation and how that works with the human body yeah so, you know, historically, and this is really historically, you can go back to Chinese medicinal texts that are 2,000 years old, and they actually describe uh, FMT. Actually, they, it's oral FMT, which is a little bit uh, more unsavory, I would say. But yeah. already then, you know, the, uh, the, the scientists would realize that actually reconstitution could help, right? There is... Uh, a saying from a, 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 a medical doctor who served the, the emperor of China 2,000 years ago that says, if you give a man with diarrhea water, he will die. But if you give him the yellow soup, he might survive, right? So they understood that there was something with diarrheal diseases, uh, which we now know what they are caused by, right? They are usually, not always, but usually microbially driven and pathogen driven, that you could use other bacteria to fight bacteria. So FMT has, you know, a, it's been around for, well, for a very, very long time. The, the first publication that I am aware of, it was from 1958. Uh, there, was a, there was a Lancet paper in 2013 that basically showed that FMT could help treat pseudomembranous colitis and, and aggressive clostridium deficient infection. It got a lot of attention. It was good, but it was a reminder, right? Because exactly the same study had been performed and published in American Journal of Surgery in 1958 and showed that pseudomembranous colitis, which is a life-threatening condition, could possibly only be treated by a colectomy, could be reversed by an FMT, which mean, basically means that you take uh, it's a fecal 
deposit from a healthy individual, which allegedly would contain a healthy, fully diverse microflora. You make a slurry of this, uh, and then you basically, through a, a lavage, you give it back into the colon of a patient who have a dysbiosis. Uh, so this was described in the late 50s. It sort of confirmed what I think many expected to happen already then. And since then, it has you know, evolved into a medical practice, which uh, is being used quite broadly. Uh, definitely when you have severe dysbiosis, it's clearly being used for a CDI, so Clostridium difficile infections. Uh, but it is a medical practice. You know, it's, it's an off-label medical procedure that is being executed by the healthcare provider, usually a gastroenterologist or the like, in a hospital uh, to help a specific patient. It is not a, a medicinal product that comes with, should we say, a specification of content. Uh, so the difference between FMT and uh, the microbiota restoration therapy that, that Rebiota does is that in order for us to be able to release this product, it needs to go through a series of quality control release assays when it comes to the presence of bacteria that you specify should be in there to see the positive effect. And more importantly, this is a safety play, right? It's the mm -hmm. absence or bacteria, viruses, and fungi that you really do not want to transfer to a patient who is already in a state of vulnerability. And that list will, of course, vary depending on what it looks like in the environment where you are, right? So this is something that needs to be a sort of current, constantly upgraded. But FMT is then the practice of using bacterial uh, transfers through a feces slurry from a single donor. This is more of an industrialized version of that that would then help you hopefully to get to more patients in a standardized way. I think also with the approval of Rebiota, people got really much interested. People who are also there suffering from not just C. diff, but from other um, uh, gastrointestinal uh, issues. People from, I know there's like some studies showing that FMT also work for autism or there are some interesting uh, findings there because it's dried for a human donor. We human are different um, and we have our own microbiota. So how does the composition of the donor microbiome influence the efficacy of the FMT? And as you've mentioned, uh, the safety aspect of it. So it goes into rigorous checking because it's a drug. It's more about the donor. Is the donor influence? And we also hear about this, the super donors. Do they really exist, these super donors? Probably, but what they look like, we do not know. Uh, again, going back to my, my hero, the grandfather of microbiome, to admit that he has a couple of super donors in his freezer, which were fishermen uh, in the western part of Norway that donated in the 1980s. And, you know, this these... Uh, these uh, formulations, if we call that, they still exist. And they also published uh, uh, quite recently in 2018 in, uh, in a letter in, in journal medicine showing that this is active or still active against uh, Clostridium difficile in infection. So there probably are those who are more or less, uh, should we say, appropriate to, don to donate. 
the donor screening is like any donor screening is an organ donor screening protocol more or less right that you have to look at the health of the individual you have to look if there are any underlying diseases if there are any medications you would not want them to qualify because that could influence the composition and then it's really about what you choose to believe in what should be in there what not should be in there i think is easy to agree upon because you will look at the risk and you would agree with the regulators but you know the if you look at the ones that are now in the market like rebiota if you look at the ones that are coming uh hopefully later this year uh they're very different but they're both donor so behind each dose there is a donor right and uh, you know largely there are always variants and we know that from our research with uh, at the center of the translation microbiome research together with professor Lars Engstrom at the, at the KI the variability is is of course there when it comes to individuals but it is usually not huge variabilities in the colonic flora when it comes to things like the bacteroides presence like the, the clostridia presence uh, we should remember that clostridia is actually good for us, right? It's the clostridoides that we don't want, the C. diff. But a large part of our colon contains clostridia, which are actually metabolically important and good for us, right? So there are variabilities, but they are they are minor. And we have now looked at populations, large populations from uh, from Sweden. We have compared it with the donor programs in the U.S., uh, we also have a few other populations from other parts of the world, like China, and there are variabilities, but they are not as big as you might think. If the patient, if the person, the donor is healthy and, and medicine-free, have not taken antibiotics and so on. And in my view, you know, I see, again, the microbiome not as bacteria. I see it as an assembly of, of cells that constitute an organ. Because, so for me, it's more important what the microbiota does than exactly how it looks. It's the metabolic output, I believe, that is the most important one. And there, I think you can tolerate variabilities. Don't ask me how big variabilities, because no one can answer that. But it's the output, you know, it is the general output that we're talking about, and probably pretty basic, you know, it's the bile acid converters. It's the production of the right composition of short-chain fatty acids. It's the breakdown of carbohydrates and proteins in the proper way. Uh, some of it could also be physical, of course, bacteria to bacterial, bacteria to host interactions. But the whole system is actually set up to prevent that in the largest possible way. And therefore, I think that it is more the metabolism that is the most important one. And... I think we go in the wrong direction if we try to define this as the composition of micro, microbial species, because that's going to be a Sisyphus work to fully define that at an individual level or a population level. But looking at the output, I think, is more doable also with technologies. And looking at the mechanisms we need to understand why we see the positive effects in many different uh, conditions in the output of the microbiome or microbiota rather than in the composition. I think it's a better way of going because it also takes you to mechanisms faster. And before we actually can describe mechanisms that we are trying to intervene in, 
you know, we are not really going to mature this field into a truly life science frontline field where you develop new rationally designed therapies to address medical conditions. What also fascinates me is the the percentage of success of these FMTs. I mean, we're looking at 92% of uh, efficacy and in cytokine difficile, which brings me obviously to Rebiota and and uh, how how this FMT drug uh, was developed. And you've mentioned that addresses the C diff uh, infections. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about Rebiota and uh, the process of uh, of development? Rebiota is really a, a vision of uh, a few people in in Minnesota in Minneapolis uh, over 10 years ago now. The company was uh, formed in 2011. Uh, it's based on also research uh, that had been ongoing in, in, um, in the University of Minnesota before that. And the idea was simply one of reconstitution. To say that, you know, if, if we define free of disease uh, in the colon as high level of diversity, because this is interesting. You talked about different uh, microbiomes, right? Health or eubiosis in the colon is high diversity. You know, lots of bacteroidal species, clostridia, but high diversity. The more diverse, the better, right? And actually, dysbiosis is when you lose the diversity and you go to a more simplistic setup of bacteria. C. diff, for instance, is one example of that. VRE, vancomycin-resistant androcoxide, is another. When these multi-resistance bacteria take over, they usually dominate the flora as a whole. Not necessarily because they are more aggressive than the other bacteria, but because they operate under a, a blanket of antibiotic pressure, which takes everybody else down but keeps these up. Right. So reconstituting diversity was the whole idea. And if that is the whole idea, you should not really select, right? Then you should actually acknowledge and embrace the diversity. So then it is a question of finding a donor program where you can ensure that you have healthy donors that constitute, that live up to certain criteria. And the Rebiotics, they developed uh, something they call the Microbiota Health Index, which basically is a, is a series of genetic and, and species markers that they were looking for in what they would define as the most likely reconsti successive reconstitution, right, or successful reconstitution. So they set up a donor program, uh, which then had to be defined. They established relationships with the FDA already in 2011, 2012, and said, we intend to develop a product like this to address a, a very high medical need which resonated with the FDA. CDI, chronic recurrent CDI, is not possible to address with the current solutions, right? Uh, there's high mortality, there's high cost, there's high suffering for, for the patients. So they said, fine, let's work on that. Then they needed to define a, a donor program. They needed to define what the specification of a product like this would look like. They needed to define what kind of... Um, data would they be able to provide which constitutes the foundation of approving a drug you know pkpd for instance is mm -hmm. impossible dose selection is impossible because you said it you, you pick a dose right but what is a dose when you have a live biopharmaceutical therapeutic because 
you know, a trillion bacteria could die and be nothing, and two bacteria could actually populate, right? So what is a dose? So there were certain things that needed to be brokered and agreed uh, in order for them to even know that there is a path. Because like in Europe, where we don't have the same progress when it comes to regulators' understanding on how to document a drug, and that means you don't know how to define a trial that actually could lead to approval, which means most companies would stay away. Uh, you know, in the US, they then decided that this was worthwhile trying. So while defining then a number of things, how you handle things like CMC, which is obvious if you have a, a, a small molecule, it's not so obvious here, right? Uh, and then defining the criteria for safety and efficacy that needs to be met in a clinical trial. Uh, this was something that was worked out when we started talking to them. They've been doing this for five, six, seven years uh, and also worked in alliance with many other companies that were trying to solve the same issue. So even if they were competing with each other at some level, they also needed each other in other areas, right? Because there can only be one regulatory path. You will not be able to carve one out for yourself that is not also relevant for someone else. So you might as well sort of somehow work in concert at least, right? Even if you try to get, reach the goal first. So Rebiota became sort of a definition for a non-selected microbiome-based product. Uh, and the intent is to reconstitute. You know, if you're looking to hit certain specific molecular pathways, like some are trying to do, you know, you could probably find the bacteria in Rebiota because we haven't chosen, but it's not developed for that. But for any condition where reconstitution of eubiosis could be uh, a good way to reconstitute health, of course, you could see an opportunity to use a product. Going forward, if we now move into other areas that you also have mentioned, you're going to have to be more, ref more refined. You lift it. The second generation of this, these products will have to be donor-free. And everybody talks about this field as if it's already there. But as a matter of fact, the only, the only formulations that have proven sustainable clinical effect in randomized prospective clinical trials are donor-based, right? To date, there is no one that has rationally selected who has been able to prove some of them because they haven't gotten that far, right? But there are no confirmatory phase three trials in rationally selected floras that have actually uh, proven to work at a level where they could be called a drug. They're all donor-based. And of course, the field can't stop there. <laughs> we need to break that mold so at some point, you need to be donor independent. Even if you have a non-selected or a broad consortium, it needs to be donor independent, right? And that would probably be the next step. And then you would have rationally designed versions of this as the following step. Hopefully, some of the ones who are out there trying to crack this from a more scientific perspective will get there faster because the field needs it, right? I keep saying that to my colleagues here as well. It's, it's nice for a period of time to be the first mover. There's never an advantage in being the first mover. In pharmaceutical industry, the first movers usually are not there 20 years later when people talk about the success of the field. Now we just happen to be the first mover, so we're gonna to have to prove the world wrong on that. But if we stop 
now with what we have and do not move this forward innovation-wise when it comes to the medical offering. You can actually see a lot more applications with a, with a product like Rebiota because, you know, CDI is not the only dysbiosis that you could try to address, right? But if you stop here, you will not develop the field and you will not be there 10 or 20 years from now because the future, you know, is owned by those who can actually find a way forward and turn this into a molecular science and a rational drug design. So this is really what we're going for now. Now we have a product approved. It's being launched in the U.S. as we speak. Hopefully we'll get a cash flow at some point that is bigger than our investment, which has not been small either. Right? Yeah. And that cash flow will be used to reinvent ourselves, to make sure that we continue to contribute to our part of, of improving healthcare through this, uh, this type of modality. And at the same time, I mean, I'm absolutely fascinated by the basic science and what you can learn from doing translational research, epidemiological research on the microflora like we're doing at the Karolinska Institute because we will learn so much, right? Uh, and there we work not only with the gastrointestinal microbiome, our biggest studies are in women's health. So there we also include gastrointestinal microbiome still has a huge role to play because it has an impact, it impacts systemically. But of course, the vaginal microbiome is extremely important as well. And this is a fascinating thing because, you know, eubiosis in the vaginal microbiome is basically a few bacteria, lactobacilli, dominate, right? In the colon, it's just the opposite. So dysbiosis in the vagina is actually diversity, whereas this dysbiosis in, in the colon is actually simplicity, right? So two areas in the same human body that has evolved completely different, simply because the needs and the physiology and the way to establish mutualistic or symbiotic relationships with these microorganisms and hosts requires so different things. So scientifically, this is this is an amazing area to follow. That is amazing as well when you mentioned about the the the, the, this, the differences between the, the gastrointestinal tract and the vaginal microbiome, which are really the opposite of the dysbiosis, how it's defined. It is also the case on the skin. We have, for instance, in the skin microbiota, mm -hmm. the acne is the dominant on the face. If it goes down, we can see the diseases like rosacea coming up, psoriasis, acne, and so on. As you said, uh, having a simplistic approach is more of, okay, looking, what is the microflora? Uh, what is in it? How can impact? It's more of focusing on the outcome rather than the actual treatment itself, which is, I think, uh, you are doing in that sense. But you've also mentioned families matter, no matter what the shape or the size. I would like to ask you a question about how feeding pharmaceuticals now is bringing Rebiota to the to the world now is available in the U.S. Uh, for the CDF. Uh, what are the plans to make this a global and uh, make it accessible to this huge uh, community suffering from CDF infections? So, of course, the the view on CDF uh, infections and the incidence is different in different societies. In the U.S., there's a high level of urgency, a high level of recognition that this is a a fundamental threat to their healthcare system and and uh, with a mortality rate that is at least high, recognized as higher than, than many other places in the world. We will take Rebiota to any market where it is possible for us to take it. 
starting with areas that would uh, accept the U.S. data for filing. There are a number of countries like that. Uh, also starting to talk to regulators worldwide. We already have done that. What would it take to document this product in your country uh, for an approval? And in many parts of the world, those guidelines are not established yet. So there are limitations. You know, I can speak to regulators in Europe and they will not be able to define a set of criteria that I need to document for them to say, if you do this, well, then you follow a route which makes this approvable. And of course, that means you start phase three trials without an agreed endpoint with your regulators. That would not be very useful. So there will be limitations in how fast we can go uh, in the beginning. It's partly driven by the environment, the regulatory environment. It's the disease as such. Uh, and it is also driven by the fact that we're working with a donor-based product still, which actually means that scalability is, is uh, a limitation. That's why new donor-independent versions will be necessary if you actually want to have these as globally available standardized products. Uh, because then you have a scale-up system where basically more fermenters will lead to more output of API, active pharmaceutical ingredient and, and formulations. Uh, scale out systems, which this is, which means that you know more product means more donors, uh, always can work, but they are, they're vulnerable and it's hard to actually scale it to a global uh, environment. So although I would like to have this everywhere immediately, I will have to live by those limitations and take step mm -hmm. by step. So while I work on making Rebiota available wherever it can be, uh, I also have to work on other solutions to make it easier for us to distribute it. You know, our, our credo, building families of all shapes and sizes, uh, our investments in maternal health, where we actually distribute drugs uh, to a large part in the non-paying world, so it's not where companies go to make money, is possible simply because we have scalable processes. You know, we have their products that can be produced in China and sent everywhere, or in India and sent everywhere, or in Switzerland and sent everywhere. So that is going to be one of the most important nuts to crack for us to be able to make this more globally available. And that's why I'm also rooting and hoping that those companies who are bold enough to try to crack that nut already now, based on what is out there in terms of information, that some of them will be successful because that will accelerate this uh, significantly. Amazing. And I can only wish you the best, to be honest, for the journey. Uh, the time has passed very quickly and I didn't even see it uh, passing. Yeah. Uh, and I know you have other commitments. We'll just go very quickly, really quickly into the last five questions uh, that I asked to all the Microbiome Maverick. Short ones. Why do you do what you do? I do what I do because I want to make a significant contribution to the global healthcare sectors. Uh, I, I work for pharma because this is where you can make a difference on scale, on populations, and, and change what good healthcare looks like. Amazing. Uh, a productivity tip that you can share. Focus and measure. Focus on what matters and continuously, relentlessly measure progress or deviation from progress. 
Amazing. All the founders I spoke to, uh, it's like 11 or 13, they all mentioned one common thing, focus. Yeah. So I definitely take that one. One book that inspires you. Well, I, I would say there are many books that inspires me, but if we're looking for one that gives us reason to believe on the microbiome, it's really Martin Blazer's Missing Microbes that uh, really paints a global picture, not only on human medicine, but, you know, agriculture, fishery, you know, the impact on the global microbial communities and how that long term will have also uh, environmental impacts of high significance. And then someone that inspires you. Well, I'll, I'll mention two, uh, and, uh, you know, I've already talked about them, you know, the grandfather and the father of the microbiome, or the grandfather of the microbiome, Ture Mitvet, professor at the Karolinska Institute, now emeritus, 88 years old, and, of course, the father, I would say, of the modern microbiome era, Jeff Gordon, who is uh, who has second to none opened up the possibilities that we're talking about today. Amazing. Last thing is, if there is something you would like to change in this planet, what would that be? Well, there's a lot of things. Um, probably if I had a, another 30 minutes, I would talk about other things than the microbiome. For instance, the, the huge health disparities that affects uh, young women, pregnant women and their unborn children worldwide. This is one of the, the things that the world should definitely address. And we can address if we want to. But to stay close to the topic... I would say if I wanted to address something, I would like to see clear policies and a restrained use of antibiotics worldwide in every sense, in human healthcare and everywhere else. Because, uh, of course, this is an opportunity for microbiome-based therapies. But unless we become more restrained in using antibiotics across our lifestyle, we will destroy the global microbiome and the global microbial communities with long-standing effects. Dear Per, it was a really great pleasure having you as one of our microbiome mavericks. Really inspiring. And thank you so much for your contribution. Amina, it was a pleasure to speak to you. And good luck with your podcast and good luck with your book. Thank you. To know more about Per Falk and Fearing Pharmaceuticals, please visit www.fearing.com.